Grip Pod Pals and welcome back to Best Girl Grip. I'm your host, Nicole Davis, and this is the podcast that navigates the film industry through the lens of the women doing just that. I've got a Friday treat for you in the form of this bonus minisode with documentary filmmaker and producer Sarah Dosa, whose latest project, Fire of Love, is in UK cinemas today. If you go to fireoflovefilm.com, you can find showtimes near you, and I recommend that you do. This explosive and intimate and eccentric documentary tells the story of Katia and Maurice Kraft, French volcanologists who were also a married couple. For two decades, they roamed the planet, chasing eruptions and documenting their discoveries, and in doing so, left behind a legacy that enhanced our knowledge of the natural world. Sarah and the filmmaking team have crafted a lyrical and curious celebration of the intrepid scientist's spirit of adventure, drawing from the craft's spectacular archive and imbuing their story with a freshness and ferocity that sizzles on the screen. Sarah has also directed an Emmy-nominated episode of the Netflix music docuseries Remastered about Johnny Cash's 1970 concert for Richard Nixon and premiered her third feature as director, The Seer and the Unseen, at the 2019 San Francisco International Film Festival. As a documentary producer, she recently produced the Peabody and Emmy-nominated Survivors about Ebola in Sierra Leone, co-produced an inconvenient sequel, Truth to Power, and The Edge of Democracy, and produced Peabody award-winning Audrey and Daisy. We talk about how she got her start in filmmaking alongside studying anthropology and how her interest in human behaviour continues to inform her practice, as well as what led her to directing Fire of Love, how she came to involve Miranda July, and why Agnes Varda was a key inspiration. Before we get going, you'll hear a brief clip from the trailer, and I urge you to seek it out in cinemas this weekend. This is Katya, and this is Maurice. Tomorrow will be their last day. They will leave behind hundreds of hours of footage, thousands of photos and a million questions. Alone, they could only dream of volcanoes. Together, they can reach them. First off, I'd love to know if you recall a moment, a film or an experience that made you want to be a filmmaker. I, yeah, there there was actually a number of moments early on when I first started university that made me want to be a filmmaker. I, I grew up always curious about art, but I actually wasn't interested in film until I got to college. Uh, my university, um, uh, Wesleyan University, which is a small school in, in the state of Connecticut, um, has a, a fabulous film program and a film series that the students themselves curate. And I remember deciding to just go and, and check it out. And um, in the span of probably a month, I saw The Graduate, uh, Requiem for a Dream, Oh Brother, Where Out Thou, and a documentary called Life and Debt all at once. And <laughs> my imagination was just totally ignited. I, I felt like I was entering worlds, if that makes sense. I felt like each film was transportative and created such a cohesive and beautiful feeling of place and time and, and character. And especially some of them, the, the music uh, was transcendent and it just kind of ignited these emotions in me that um, I hadn't necessarily experienced before. And, and the documentary Life and Debt, that explored free trade in, in Jamaica and the politics of neoliberalism there. 
Um, I've got to say, I haven't watched it since, and this was 2001 <laughs> when I watched it, so a very long time ago. But I, I remember thinking about how um, that film was able to communicate these complex economic ideas and make them emotional and, and personal. And at that time, um, I, I was fascinated and outraged by kind of the, the complexity of neoliberal power and, and politics. And that was something that academically I was very committed to um, working on and, and working through. Um, and so I'll just say kind of this mix of politics, critique, uh, imagination, art, all of these things kind of formed a, a stew perhaps in my brain and made me think maybe I, I want to work towards, um, you know, nonfiction um, storytelling. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I decided I, I took kind of a, a path towards academia at first, uh, pursuing anthropology, but I was always curious about filmmaking. And, and it was always a dance between documentary, nonfiction writing and, and anthropology that eventually led to where I am now. <laughs> Is that because academia and anthropology felt maybe more tangible or a bit sensible? Like, were you contending with this idea that maybe it was a bit too much to reach for filmmaking? It's so funny. It's actually the opposite. Um, okay. My Yeah, in the United States, anthropology um, and academic jobs in anthropology are, are few and far between. And, and many anthropology departments were actually collapsing with sociology departments. And I knew this firsthand because my mother is now a retired professor of anthropology. And I grew up with her kind of guiding me through these frameworks and, and paradigms. And, and I, I loved it. And I'm, I'm super close with my mom. She's my hero. And so, of course, I would want to follow in her footsteps. But I also saw for hand how um, difficult it was to be an academic in the United States. And also, um, yeah, for for all kinds of reasons. But um, I was very passionate about it. I absolutely loved anthropology and sociology and specifically critical anthropology. Um, But I also was like curious about other avenues where uh, these kinds of anthropological questions could still become infused into my everyday. uh, But I wasn't necessarily bound to um, the frustrations or the limitations that I, I saw my mom um, have to deal with uh, working in academia. So I, I have friends who are thriving and, and I definitely don't mean to be smirched academic careers by any means. But, um, but the fact that I was able to kind of find an eventual professional home within documentary film, mm. I feel like I'm able to call upon some of the curiosities um, that were very meaningful to me when I did kind of flirt with academia, but I'm able to explore those more through kind of the realm of art. And that's, yeah, that's been kind of a, a fun, I mean, documentary filmmaking is incredibly challenging and not critical either. <laughs> I don't mean to say it's the easy path. Um, it's definitely not. Um, but I, I feel lucky that after kind of climbing and scraping my way for the past decade or so, um, I found really wonderful collaborators and, and found a community that I feel like has uh, helps to support me to continue continue to make the kind of work that I hope to make. Well, speaking of, yeah, finding a home within the documentary world and and hustling to kind of make that happen, like what were some of the first doors that you knocked on? Like how did you go about finding that community? Yeah, the first door I knocked on was a a company called Actual Films in San Francisco that very serendipitously, the woman at the time, a woman named Joy Zanders, who was their um, office manager, went to the same university I went to and she decided to hire me. um, And uh, I was so grateful for that. It felt like serendipity. That company now is run 
done by and, and was founded by uh, Bonnie Cohen and, and John Shank, uh, who are just brilliant filmmakers, and they have an amazing team that they work with. Um, but yeah, right out of college, I was their intern and then their office manager, and I learned so much from them. Um, they're still very close, dear friend. They feel like family to me. This was you know nearly twenty years ago that we first started working together. But they're they're um, very um, embedded and, and respected within the San Francisco documentary community, which is where I live. And I feel like getting to work with them, um, it really kind of introduced me to a, a lot of people uh, in that community um, who I would also then begin to work with, um, you know, uh, starting out like their friends would, would say like, oh, can we borrow Sarah for a shoot? We need a PA. And so then I would hop onto one shoot and I would, you know, carry gear, but I would see how another filmmaking team works. And and from there, you know, they would then introduce me to somebody else. And so those kinds of networks of, uh, of, of the community were really um, incredibly useful um, and also really fun. Um, but that was very much kind of the training ground for me. And, and then I, you know, was able to, to, you know, I learned how to apply for grants and, and whatnot and ended up actually working at the San Francisco Film Society in their grants program for a while, um, which taught me a lot more about the industry side of things and also introduced me to a lot of other people. Um, but although it always came back to relationships, I think of, of like, yeah, tending to friendships, tending to collaborations. Yeah, really understanding how we all work together in a community that that was always kind of what allowed me to, to continue to not just find work, but enjoy the work. And I noticed like a lot of your initial credits are as a producer and you still produce today. And was the plan always to transition into directing and maybe kind of learn through producing or or did it kind of evolve gradually? Yeah, actually very early on, I wanted to be a cinematographer. <laughs> I had some experiences. I, I was PAing a lot on, on car commercials and, and other commercials in San Francisco to try to balance out my internship and, uh, you know, to pay rent. And I encountered some really horribly sexist moments, actually, when I, I was trying to learn about lights and I was always trying to kind of observe the, the grips and and uh, and gaffers on those commercial sets um, in an effort to to gain kind of the practical knowledge that I hoped would enable me to become a cinematographer. And I always kept getting rerouted towards um, being an office PA, being, you know, on craft service, these very gendered roles. Um, it was infuriating to me, but it also gave me a lot of uh, production skills where I found like I could get work more as a producer and as, you know, <laughs> as someone trying to make their way and in a very difficult field. Yeah, I needed to take the jobs I, I could I could get. And those were, yeah, production coordinator, uh, then associate producer, and then producing jobs. I learned a ton from them, but I did always dream of being a director. And and so I would start to kind of dream up my directing projects uh, on the side, you know, it was very much a nights and weekends kind of thing. And then I would apply for grants and, and um, luckily some grants would come through and then, you know, I, I would try to kind of patchwork together a schedule where uh, I could have just enough money coming in for my producing jobs um, to allow me to, to work on the directing work. But Fire of Love, it was, is really the first film um, and it's thanks to Sandbox Films, our executive producers, that uh, where I actually made like I, I had a salary as a director um, and could like make a film without having a, so many side hustles or producing other people's projects and just focus on directing. So I'm forever grateful for like the opportunity of getting to just focus on directing. And it's, it's how I hope to continue to, to work moving forward. 
And talk to me how you about how you dreamed up this idea, you know, in what form did it come to you? Did you hear about Katia and Maurice first? Were you interested in volcanoes first? You know, what was it, the chicken or the egg? It's a good question. I, I learned actually about Katia and Maurice um, when I was researching for the last film I made, um, a film called The Sierra and the Unseen. That actually, um, one of my editors, Erin Casper um, of Fire of Love, she also edited that. And Shane Boris, some producer of Fire of Love, also produced that. So that, that team, you know, carried forward. Um, but we were researching images of erupting volcanoes in Iceland, archival images of erupting volcanoes in Iceland um, to open that film. Um, We think of that film as a magically real documentary, which might seem kind of oxymoronic, but for us, it was a a fun, creative challenge for us. Um, But we wanted old images of erupting volcanoes to help kind of situate like uh, the opening of the film um, in a way that felt like it was kind of in in a different time. Um, It could feel primordial and and kind of like uh, the audience was being met with these forces of creation and destruction. And once one researches archival images of, of volcanoes erupting, um, you can't help but, but come across <laughs> Anne Maurice. And their images stood out as just like absolutely incredible. And we we couldn't work with them for, for uh, Sierra and the Unseen, but um, we remembered, you know, that they had shot hundreds of hours of footage. The more we learned about them as people, we were really intrigued, especially, you know, they were a married couple and so playful and philosophical. Um, we really thought that they could make for a great film. Um, but then Shane and Aaron and I, um, and also our associate producer, Elijah Stevens, um, we started working on a different film once we finished Sierra and the Unseen, uh, which was supposed to be an observational doc uh, shot in Siberia about these mysterious methane explosions happening uh, in the Yamal Peninsula. Um, and we were getting ready to go on a scout to Siberia in April 2020. <laughs> And then, you know, the world shut down and that project collapsed. And we thought um, maybe if we could come across an archival project, that would be a way to continue to make work during the pandemic. And that's when we were reminded of Katia and Maurice and and ended up getting access to their footage. And one thing led to the next. And you referenced them being playful as a couple. And what really struck me about the film was how playful it was, how stylish it was. It felt like you just had a real creative vision for it, like how you wanted to tell the story. So I'd love to hear a little bit about how that came about, you know, like how you articulated what it was specifically you wanted to do with their story. Yeah, we we wanted to be led by Katya and Maurice first and foremost, um, which is such a challenge um, when your protagonists have passed away 30 years before you ever really come across their story. But we really tried to listen as deeply as we could, um, not just to their footage um, and their interviews, but also, you know, what was behind the images, so to speak. Like, for example, there's, of course, beautiful images of volcanoes, but then there's also love. Like you can, at least for, for us, we were just like awestruck by like this unmistakable feeling of love that permeated the frame like they got so close like they filmed with such intentionality and intensity so it was, it was trying to kind of perceive um, those layers that are infused kind of within the image but we also um oh and, and in terms of also kind of listening and being guided by them um there's this great sentence that Maurice wrote in one of his books where he says for me Katya and volcanoes it is a love story. And for us, we're like, okay, Maurice is telling us his story is a love triangle about his wife and volcanoes. And and we just loved that idea that um, there could be this kind of playful framework. Um, so that that was um, kind of a, an initial inspiration um, as well. Also being guided by them, like they very much kind of embraced a lot of the trappings of the French New Wave. Mm-hmm. And so um, we wanted to as well, um, which seems kind of uh, unexpected, perhaps, for um, a film about 
nature uh, to be kind of employing those aesthetics, but like it really shows up in, in their work. Like Maurice, for example, has those really fun kind of snap zooms in his cinematography and the way Katya wrote uh, a lot of their books had this kind of bombastic, playful voice that reminded us of Agnes Varda or, or some of Truffaut's narration. So we were trying to like work with those textures, not really inspired us, but kind of first and foremost, like the, the idea of just kind of making sense of the materiality of, of their lives um, made us think about collage and this idea of what it means to take these pieces, um, to weave them together, to find the right balance, to bring together like science and love, um, you know, uh, to bring together uh, different scraps of images, to also acknowledge the gaps, um, all the mysteries and, and the questions that we can never answer. The same way, you know, Katya and Maurice as scientists uh, had so many questions and, and embraced the mysteries of volcanoes. Like we, we tried to really work with that as well. It all sounds like stew as I'm saying it. <laughs> so many pieces, but the collaborative process of working with my editors, Aaron and Jocelyn, and and my my producers, Shane and, and Ina, and my EPs, Greg and, and Jess, it was always a balance of trying to kind of work with these images, um, trying to kind of line them up and and string them out um, with the structure of this love triangle kind of overall narrative, but having the right balance of, of humor and philosophy of trying to bring out Katya and Maurice's characters as, mo- as much as we could, given the limitations of the archive, while still kind of making space for the mysteries that we could never know about, about them and their personal relationships um, or about the mystery that is volcanoes. And you spoke about narration there in relation to the French New Wave. And actually, it struck me as you were talking about that, that Miranda July, who narrates this film, actually has quite a a French New Wave sensibility, especially her Instagram and all her dancing that she does on there. But I'm wondering, yeah, why you picked her and what you felt her voice and her cadence and and maybe what we associate with Miranda July would then lend to this story. Yeah, um, Miranda is one of the artists whose work has inspired me most. Um, I, I just absolutely uh, adore her and yeah, I'm in awe of, of her talents. One of the things that I love so much about her work is she's able to kind of communicate the, the strange beauty of what it means to be human mm-hmm. and kind of the magic and bafflement uh, about like like being in relationship with one another, like um, in her short stories and as well as her film work and, and um, her, yeah, all of her work, I feel like she's able to kind of communicate just how amazing it is to like be in relationship, whether it's like just for a moment, you know, just passing through the hallway with another person or finding someone you're going to be with for the rest of your life. Like she, she does such a great job of um, communicating intimacy. So all, all of those things were, were themes that we were interested in, um, in Fire of Love. And we hoped that she would kind of just infuse the narration with, with that spirit. Um, but she's also so curious and playful and at once can be like wonderfully deadpan. <laughs> and um, chan- we were trying to channel the French New Wave in, in not just kind of the way we wrote, but um, but also some of the, the cadences. Um, Godard's masculine, effeminate, the narrator in that film speaks with a very kind of restrained deadpan delivery. Uh, and that's something that we were intrigued by because uh, it allowed for like the space of, of the story to to be to come to the fore in a different kind of way, and we didn't want our narration to feel distracting. It was like an, we we needed the narration in order to kind of tell the story that we wanted to tell, but we really didn't want it to be like we really wanted it to focus on Katya and Maurice's imagery, Katya and Maurice's voices as much as possible. And so we thought that a more like deadpan, restrained tone could allow for that space, but we didn't want it to be deadpan and 
like a cold or neutral way. We want it to have curiosity and warmth and feeling. And, and Miranda is just that kind of talented actor who can be all those things at once. So we, we, yeah, we were so grateful for how she infused, um, you know, her performance with curiosity and, and, uh, delight and warmth while still holding space for kind of Katya and Maurice to, to hopefully come to the fore. And the other thing that does that so well is the music and the composition. It also has warmth and feeling. And I loved, I mean, I don't know if this is true, actually, but there's a moment where uh, the shot goes underwater and oh, yeah. the music changes as though you're also underwater. And I loved it. But yeah, talk to me a little bit about how you how you worked with the composer to sort of, again, create this otherworldly music. From the very beginning, we wanted um, what we called a retro futuristic score for the film. I always kind of thought about it as like dreaming of the future, but from a vintage past. And a lot of that was because we were inspired by like the kind of sci-fi B-movie aesthetics that um, Katya and Maurice were embracing, like, for example, with their like space helmet type of suits. <laughs> so that that kind of uh, tone for music felt appropriate. Um, and we started brainstorming bands that uh, we thought could do that well. And <clears throat> we we're particularly looking for French bands since Captain Maurice were French. Uh, and we came across Air, <laughs> who I personally loved um, and, and still love. And we reached out to Nicolas Godin, who is one half of the duo of Air. And it turns out that he actually watched Katya and Maurice on television as a kid growing up in France and just had all kinds of warm associations with them and, and got really excited about the whole idea of a retro futuristic score. Um, he thought that that would fit as well. And so we began collaborating and yeah, I feel like Nico brought so much kind of whimsy and a sense of play and charm uh, to the score. He also kind of made space for some of the kind of collage elements too, because uh, most of the film is his score, but but we wanted the score to also feel just as much of a collage as the art visual material. And so we have a lot of French pop music uh, from the 60s and 70s to kind of, you know, stamp our, our time and place. Uh, and, you know, for example, the, the song that you mentioned that drops underwater with, with yeah. the uh, love as it pops. Uh, that's a Dali Da song that, that was very popular. And so it's a love song too. The, the lyrics are actually fit with, you know, kind of the, the story of, of love. So um, that was something too that, that Nico, of course, embraced and, and celebrated. Yeah, but he was wonderful to work with. And, and we feel like kind of his music really helped to kind of, it was kind of a, a glue or, or uh, yeah, his music kind of really helped to hold together the tonalities and the whimsy um, and just like the the magic, you know, that comes with a love story. So I'm so grateful for his collaboration. Absolutely. And was there anything about working on this story in particular or, or directing the film that surprised you that you weren't expecting that maybe kind of forced you to go in a different direction? Oh, there, there are so many things. <laughs> I think one of the things really was embracing the mystery and the questions we had, because the, when we were watching the footage, some of some of the reels that we received kind of made some sense of there was like a chronological flow, you know, you would see Katya and Maurice like hiking up a crater and then going into the crater. And then there was the shots of the volcano. But then there's some reels that seemed like they were the, the cuttings from other reels mm -hmm. thrown onto the floor, and then picked up from the 
floor and just like piece back together in some haphazard fashion. And the order of them made no sense to us at all. And no matter how much research we did, we we couldn't explain like why, what shots were what, who uh, was in some of these shots, why they were taken. But that um, that search for answers and and that kind of surrendering to the mysteries that we could never know really did make its way into our own process and, and having to acknowledge kind of the limitations and the gaps and, and um, embrace them as the process of archival storytelling and, and how that kind of mirrors the scientific process of inquiry and contending with the unknown. Um, that element, I, I didn't realize um, how important that was going to be to us or, or to the film. Um, there's still parts of me that like I have such an unrequited relationship with the film because I so wish that I could have spoken with Katya and Maurice and asked them these questions. And I know Katya and Maurice had an unrequited relationship with volcanoes because they so sought to understand them all the while knowing they could never fully understand them, that in their own words, volcanoes are beyond human comprehension. So um, had to embrace that unrequitedness as like perhaps a, I, I hope there's a poignancy there between our process. Maybe that's just how I'm justifying it. But, <laughs> um, but it's, uh, but it had, yeah, we, we had no other choice and, and we just had to learn from all that we could never fully know. And, and that's something that I think is going to guide um, filmmaking processes in the future of, of tr- trying embrace the mystery and work with it rather than fight against it or or try to paper it out of a film for you know narrative cohesion or or you know uh, a polished story uh, I feel like there's a lot of um, exposed scenes in the film but that's something that I actually really like and I hope that it'll make it feel handmade and, and human even though one of the main characters in the film is a non-human force of nature <laughs> yeah no definitely there's a nice mirroring there so winding down, something that I ask all my guests is whether there's a film from a woman director that you love, think about, return to, and maybe in the context of Fire of Love, something that you watch to sort of galvanize your own journey. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Agnes Barda is such a muse. Um for this film. The Gleaners and I is a film that I've returned to many times over the years, but her incredibly playful voice, just what it means to search the idea of gleaning, of finding footage, of finding imagery, that that was um, incredibly impactful as, as we made this film. And yeah, Agnes Varda, just as, as a, a pioneering filmmaker who really fought hard and um, was up against so many challenges as a woman director, especially the time that she was working. I mean, she was working up until you know, she passed away. And so uh, I don't mean to just locate her in, um, you know, in in the French New Wave era. But yeah, she was a tremendous muse on this film. There's another filmmaker who's also a dear friend um, named Nadia Shihab, who is brilliant and incredibly playful and talented filmmaker who who makes really kind of personal films that also feel so transportative and, and universal. And and she's a filmmaker who whose work I, I really am excited to follow and just want to like celebrate her because I learned so much from her curious way and how she writes and, and directs her films, too. Amazing. Thank you for those recommendations. And thank you for this film. I enjoyed it so much. I've been recommending it to everyone um, recently. So yeah, it's out in cinemas and I can't wait for more people to see it. Thank you, Sarah. Oh, thank you, Nicole. This is such a fun conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this bonus minisode of Best Girl Grip. If you liked what you heard, there is an archive of over 100 episodes to delve into wherever you get your podcasts, including another minisode with documentary filmmaker Liz Garbus about her film Becoming Cousteau. 
In the meantime, have a glorious, fiery weekend, and I'll be back on Tuesday with a brand new episode.